are in Philippians chapter 3, looking at verses 12 through 21. If you're using the church Bible, that's on page 1166. Philippians 3, 12 through 21. I'm going to read the passage and then we'll look at it together. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is God's word. I have to confess that this is a bit of a dangerous passage for me to preach on because I love racing and there's a real risk that I'll just talk about running for the next 25 minutes straight. I'll stick to my notes to make sure I don't, but I love racing. I love towing the line with hundreds of other runners who have spent long hours in the dark, in the wet, in the cold training, and then it all comes together. We all join together in running a race. Time to put our training to the test. I've won a heat before, but never a race. And nevertheless, I love the competition, the camaraderie. I love watching races. My dad and brother and I have a group chat that is primarily full of shared links to different race videos. Uh, Jacob Ingebrigtsen's World Championship 5,000 meter run last summer in Eugene to high school races with great finishes. Uh, what's the old motto of the wide world of sports? The thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. I love it. And in our passage, Paul takes racing as a picture of the Christian life. Well, I know not everyone's a runner, and so I've tried to be balanced in our outline. So the first point is run with your eyes on the prize. The second is walk as citizens of heaven. Okay, so there's something for both paces, running, walking, uh, trying to be balanced here. First, run with your eyes on the prize. Run with your eyes on the prize. Uh, the passage begins with Paul trying to correct potential misunderstandings. In that passage we looked at last week, you'll recall Paul said, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I may share in his sufferings and be conformed to his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Okay, 
From that, you might get the wrong impression that Paul thinks he's made it. I've lost all things, but I've gained Christ. I've arrived. But what does Paul say in verse 12? He warns us, no, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. I have not yet obtained perfect knowledge of Christ. Think about this. Paul, who saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, who at this point has already written the letter to the Galatians and to the Romans, Paul, whose theology of God's work in Christ has shaped how every subsequent Christian thinks about Christ Jesus, says, there's more to know. There's more depths to knowing Christ that I want to get into. There's more to this relationship that I strive for. Okay, knowing Jesus is not a freshman year course that you take and then are done with it. Paul says it's a lifelong pursuit, and indeed it's a pursuit that extends into eternity as we come to know the eternal, infinite God more deeply. And so Paul picks up a racing analogy to make his point. In verse 12 and then verses 13 to 14, there's two sentences that basically parallel each other. In both, Paul says something about the past, something about the present, and about the future. How does Paul think about the past? In verse 13, he says, I do not consider I've made it my own. Or we might paraphrase, I don't reckon I've won yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I strain towards what lies ahead. I press on. Now, it's important to remember how God has been faithful in our past. It's important to pass those stories on to the next generation. Indeed, a significant theme we've seen in the book of Philippians is Paul telling his own story from the perspective of the gospel for the benefit of the Philippians. So clearly remembering is important. What then is Paul saying here about forgetting what lies behind? I think we need to understand this in the context of his image of racing. When the bell rings on the last lap of a race, it doesn't matter how fast you started out. It doesn't matter how much you dropped off in the middle. There's only one thing that matters. What you do in the next lap. There's one thing, pressing on. That, uh, of course, you're going to expect this, but that great movie, Chariots of Fire, tells the true story of Eric Liddell. And one scene is, is totally true. Uh, in 1923, at the Stoke-on-Trent quarter-mile race, Eric Liddell really was knocked over during the race. He fell to the ground. He looks up. The other runners are 20 meters ahead of him. And yet, instead of dropping out, he gets up, and he keep, come back from behind to win the race. Okay, that's what forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead looks like. Yes, I stumbled. That's in the past. Forget it. What matters is what I do next. I once ran a half marathon where a helpful volunteer at the first mile mark thought that an arrow was pointing the wrong way and so turned the sign over and sent us for an extra mile. Okay, and then once we got back to the course, there's still 12 miles to go. The question is, what do you do? What do you do at that point? Do you drop out? Do you, uh, you know, reroute, do your own thing? What do you do? Or do you forget what lies behind and strain towards what lies ahead? That's what Paul's talking about here. 
Forget anything in your past that hinders your present effort that keeps you from your future goals. In racing, the mental is just as hard as the physical. Your mind comes up with all sorts of reasons to slow down. Remember five weeks ago on a Saturday when you slept in instead of doing your workout? You, you can't keep up this pace. Or, you know, that feeling in your knee, maybe that's going to be an injury. You should slow down. You don't want to hurt anything. All these sorts of reasons. So too in life, we can be so focused on the past or the potential cost that we give up. We focus on past failures. Our mind says, you aren't the sort of person God needs. Don't bother. Someone else will do it. Or we can look at our past faithfulness. We can say, you know what? I did great work as a Christian a decade ago. That's good enough. I can coast for a while. But what does Paul say? He says, in this sense, forget what lies behind. The bell has rung. It's the last lap. Strain towards the goal. Don't look over your shoulder. Race with your eyes on the prize. Then Paul turns to the present. He says he's like a runner straining forward to what lies ahead. Every muscle burning, his lungs exploding. He leans forward, every fiber of his being pushing forward. And so what does Paul do in the present? Uh, the verb's repeated twice, his key verb in verse 12 and 14. I press on to make it my own. I press on toward the goal. It's the motto for those who run with their eyes on the prize. Press on. Press on. It's interesting, it's actually the same word that Paul used in verse 6. Uh, in verse 6, the ESV translated, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Well, maybe we could use the word pursue or chase in both contexts to, to, to be consistent in all three places. He's saying, my passion was expressed through pursuing Christians, through chasing them down. Now my passions have been reordered and I pursue Christ. I chase Christ. But Paul isn't Forrest Gump deciding to go for a run for no particular reason, okay? He runs because he has a goal in mind. He has something in his future that he's looking out to. He says, I press on to make it, knowing Christ, to make it my own. I press on towards the goal to win the prize. John Calvin comments, Paul thinks of nothing but Christ, knows nothing else, desires nothing else, is occupied with no other subject of meditation. He's single-minded in his dogged pursuit of Christ. A runner is motivated to train all winter long in the wet and cold because they have a goal. The future goal shapes present practice. And so Paul has a goal. He runs with his eyes on the prize, and it shapes how he lives in the here and now. One of the things I love about Philippians is Paul keeps putting things in unexpected or even paradoxical ways that force us to slow down and meditate on God's work in our lives. The most obvious example was in chapter 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work, for God is working in you, so you can work. Or last week, we expected Paul maybe to say, I found Christ, but instead he says, I was found in Christ. And here in our passage, Paul has two more of these paradoxical statements. Verse 12, he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has already made me his own. 
I reach out to seize the prize because Jesus has already reached out and seized me. I press on to win Christ because Christ has already won me. And then in verse 14, we almost feel Paul's running feet lifting off the track. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That language of call is important. Uh, it's not like when you get an unknown number on your phone that you ignore, that you know, it's God's calling, you can ignore it if you want to. That's not the picture. God's call is his word that a creation transforms the chaos into the world we live in. It's God's word that comes into our lives when they are chaos and transforms us. What does Paul say? God's loving call comes in Christ Jesus. You want to hear God calling? Look at Jesus. That's where we hear God's call. In this series, I keep coming back to Paul's wonderfully succinct summary of the gospel in chapter 2 because it's a linchpin of his argument. Okay, he's already laid out what Christ Jesus did. Now he's saying we hear the call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, the one who is in the form of God but emptied himself, who became a servant, who humbled himself, who was obedient even to the point of death on a cross before being recognized by God as the victor who was highly exalted. Saying, in Christ's incarnation, humility, death, exaltation, we hear the call of God to be transformed. So if we put it all together, Paul says, I press on every muscle straining like an Olympic runner because I have heard the call of God in Christ Jesus. Because Christ has already taken hold of me and made me his own. Striving isn't something we do to getting good with God. Striving is how we respond to God's call in Christ Jesus. Striving is a response to God's great love for us, his transforming call. We can say with Paul, Christ Jesus has made me his own. And so I press on towards him. In verses uh, 15 and 16, Paul makes clear, this is not a mindset just for apostles or super Christians. This is a mindset for everyone. It's the way everyone should think to be mature. We're called to run with our eyes on the prize. And so Paul says, look at me, I'm an example. I know I'm not perfect. I know I still have more to learn. And yet, nevertheless, my life is an example of the sort of attitude and mindset that's appropriate for mature Christians. And then in verses 15 and 16, the second part of verse 15 and verse 16, it's, it's really important for how we live together as Christians. Do you see what Paul says? He says, this is the mindset for mature Christians. And yet, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Paul's carefully balancing two truths here. On the one side, he's saying, the Philippians, you're free to disagree with me on many points. And if it's important, I trust God to bring you up to speed. On the other hand, though, he's saying there is this basic gospel truth that we have all attained, and you need to hold true to it. Okay, the program doesn't change for mature Christians. It's the same beginning to end. It's the gospel right through. I think we're seeing here Paul's own maturity at work, and it's something that's helpful for us as a church if we want to live as mature Christians. On the one hand, the gospel is essential, and we want to be aware that people don't depart from it. 
but at the same time, I don't need everyone to agree with me on every single point. And indeed, if people don't agree with me on certain points, I can trust that God is at work in their lives as well, leading them to the truth. You see, it, it, it lowers the temperature when there's disagreements on things, saying, you know what, that's all right. God knows, God will lead you and me both into the truth, and we can wait for God to do his work rather than trying to force everybody to think like I think. Well, for most of chapter 3, Paul has been telling the Philippians about his background, how he thinks, and his goal. But now at the end of the chapter, in verses 17 through 21, he makes the application explicit. We can summarize his application as walk as citizens of heaven. Walk as citizens of heaven. Now, I was trying to be balanced with the main points here, but actually I want to stick with Paul's racing analogy for a moment, because I think it makes a lot of sense of what he says in verses 17 through 19. Uh, several commentators come to verses 18 and 19 and they think it's somewhat out of place. Why is Paul suddenly warning about these enemies of the cross? What, what is this doing here? It doesn't seem to fit. But if we stay with Paul's racing analogy for a bit, in longer races, uh, anything from the 800 meters to 100 miles, packs of runners form. The same thing happens in bicycle race. If you watch the Tour de France, you have different packs of bicyclists. It's easier psychologically to match someone else's pace, uh, to run in a group. You can draft off each other. Okay, these packs form. But there comes a point in the race when a smaller pack breaks away from the main group. Or when you realize that the, pack is, the pack's pace is too slow for the goal that you have in mind. Okay, you're trying to run 65 second laps, the pack's going 70 second laps, it's not going to get you to the, your goal. You've got to make a decision. Do I stay with this pack or do I make a move? Do I go with this other pack that's breaking away? 20 years later, I can still remember my dad by the 200 meter mark on the back side of the track saying, go with them, go with them. You've got this. And that seems to be what Paul is saying here. He's saying there's two packs and they diverge. There's two packs you can follow. Make sure the pack you're following goes to the goal that you have in mind. On the one hand, Paul says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He's saying, come on, stick on my shoulder. Draft off me. We can do this. Follow me. Notice Paul doesn't say, I am the only person to imitate. I'm the only reliable example. That would be unhealthy and authoritarian, and when Christian leaders say, I'm the only one to follow, watch out. No, he says there's a whole group of people you can keep your eyes on. All those who walk according to this example that you have in us. Okay, he's saying there's a group of mature Christians. Follow this group. Walk according to their examples. We become like the people we surround ourselves with. We become like what we focus on, and so it's important to have godly examples if we're going to be disciples, that show us what it looks like to live in a cross-shaped, self-sacrificing, humble manner. Walk according to their examples. But then in verses 18 and 19, Paul warns, there is another pack, another set of examples we need to walk out for. They walk as enemies of the cross. They're not pressing on towards the goal. If you stick with them, it leads to failure. Notice three things in Paul's warning. First, there are those who walk as the enemies of the cross. 
I don't think Paul has in mind here non-Christians who are disparaging the cross. Most likely what he has in mind is a group who claim to be Christians, but walk or live in a way that is opposed to the cross. Okay, the way of the cross is humility, self-emptying, obedience, self-sacrifice. And so Paul seems to have in mind a group that apparently prefers to seek after human power and wisdom rather than the weakness and foolishness of the cross. But second, notice Paul is not antagonistic towards this group. What does he say? He says, I'm writing about them, and even now as I write about them, I'm weeping. He's heartbroken that these Christians, or people who claim to be Christians, are living in a way that leads to destruction. And we need to have that same pathos, that same uh, 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 compassion. We need to share with Paul that heart for those who are living in a way that leads to destruction. Indeed, we should be brought to tears over it. Third, however, Paul is not afraid for the sake of the Philippians to unmask the foolishness of their walk. He says their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul eviscerates here the you-do-you mindset. At the end of the day, if your own desires are your only guideline, if that's your highest standard in life, then your appetites rule your life. What you desire at the moment rules your life. That's your God. And Paul's saying here, really, what your, your belly's your God. If your belly says, I want cake, I eat cake. If your belly says this, I, you know, it, that runs your life. That's what Paul says, you do you, boils down to. Your God is your belly. It ends in destruction. The contrast between the two packs is made clear by their mindsets. One sets their mind on earthly things. The other pack knows that their citizenship is in heaven. The one side is saying, the earth is all there is. This life is all there is. This is it. The other says, I'm a citizen of a realm beyond the horizons of this world. Philippi was a Roman colony. I, I know I've made this point more than once, but maybe not everybody's been here. Uh, a Roman colony where Caesar Augustus settled veterans of the civil wars almost a century earlier. And so if you were a citizen of Philippi, you were a citizen of Rome itself. Okay, you were a Roman citizen. You, it, it would be the same as if you lived in Rome, the capital city. And so the Philippians would have been proud of their Roman citizenship. They would have tried to match the life of Rome in Philippi. They would have brought Roman culture and rule to northern Greece. And so Paul calls us to not rejoice in Roman citizenship, or we might say American citizenship, but rather that we are citizens of heaven. He says there's more than just this life. Don't set your mind on earthly things. Remember you are a citizen of heaven. The Christian's allegiance is ultimately beyond this earth. But that doesn't mean that we try to escape from this earth or remove ourselves from a culture that's opposed to Christianity. Like Joseph and Daniel and Nehemiah and Esther and Paul, Christians are called to live in countries and places that don't share their faith while remembering that their citizenship is ultimately in God's kingdom. This doesn't mean withdrawing from our community. Rather, just as Christ emptied himself and took the form of a servant, so Christians are called to empty themselves 
We're called to take the form of a servant like Christ to seek the good of our neighbors and our community, even when they are opposed to us. After winning the 400-meter dash at the Paris Olympics in 1924, that's kind of where Chariots of Fire ends, Eric Liddell gets on a boat, and he goes to China to serve as a missionary teacher. Well, in 1941, at the encouragement of the British government, Liddell sent his family back to Canada. Japan is about to invade, but Liddell himself stayed in China. After the Japanese invasion, he was put in an internment camp, and in that internment camp, he was a self-appointed youth worker. He took it on himself to organize and minister to the fellow youth. A, a fellow detainee named Langdon Gilkey writes about being in this internment camp. He says, almost everyone else was in despair. And yet he recalls, often in an evening, I would see Liddell bent over a chessboard or a model boat or directing some sort of square dance, absorbed, weary, and interested, pouring all of himself into this effort to capture the imagination of these penned up youths. He was overflowing with good humor and love for life and with enthusiasm and charm. I think Liddell, even beyond his racing, which is great, his life provides us a picture of what this looks like, to live with our eyes on the goal, to walk as citizens of heaven. What does he do even when he's detained in an internment camp and where he ultimately dies from a brain tumor? He is uh, absorbed, weary, interested, pouring himself out, overflowing with good humor and love for life with enthusiasm and charm. That's the picture of what a Christian should look like, living in the midst of a hostile community. What motivates this sort of walk? Paul returns at the end of our passage to his great goal, glory. Glory, but not the glory of a medal or a ribbon or standing on a podium, but the glory of Christ Jesus himself. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to be subject or to subject all things to himself. Here's the prize that we're to fix our eyes on. Here's the hope for those whose citizenship is in heaven. Jesus himself is our Savior. He will return to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. He will bring all things under his authority. See then how Paul lays out the Christian life? It's modeled on Christ's own life. Uh, Christ's life, an example, as uh, Paul lays it out in Philippians 2, we could say it's a V-shaped life. V-shaped. So his trajectory is not aiming upwards towards glory. It's aiming downwards. He empties himself. He takes the form of a servant. He humbles himself. He lives in obedience to the point of death. I'm doing a V backwards, sorry for you guys. Uh, and then at the death, that's the bottom of the V. And then, not Jesus doing anything to go to glory, God vindicates him. God says, here is the true winner of the race. Not the one who aimed for the top, but the one who descended to the bottom. And so then God exalts him. He raises him up. And so we're called to conform our lives to the same V pattern. We're called to service, to self-sacrifice, to self-giving, to humility, to obedience, perhaps even to death, trusting ourselves to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, trusting 
that God will transform one day our humble bodies to be like Christ's glorious body. So let us press on to make it our own. Let us strain forward to what lies ahead. Let us press on for the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, who has already reached out and taken hold of us. Let's pray. Lord, there are some here today who, if they are honest with themselves, recognize themselves in this picture of those who walk with their minds set on earthly things whose end is destruction. Let those who know themselves to be in that state not be offended by Paul's clear depiction, but rather may they be challenged. May they hear the call of God in Christ Jesus, the call of God on their lives to something greater, something better, to true glory. May we strain and strive and press on towards the glory of Christ Jesus. Lord, let us keep this goal before our eyes. And with this goal before our eyes, let us live a cross-shaped, V-shaped life. Let us be willing to pour ourselves out in love and good humor and joy for the sake of our community living as citizens of heaven in this outpost away from our true home. Let us live in hope and eager anticipation of the day when Christ Jesus our Lord will return as our Savior and put all things under his own authority. Keep our eyes fixed on the prize. Amen.